welcome to the Rory's Nitro podcast, the show that rips up the buy rates and TV ratings and declares our own winner in some of pro wrestling's biggest head-to-head battles. I'm your host, Lee Carlos Cunningham, and today's episode, episode 11, takes us back in the time machine to 1994, where we look at the April 11 episode of Monday Night Raw and the April 11 episode of ECW Television. In very exciting news, this will be the first episode since the show has joined the ranks of Four Corners Radio, along with some other great podcasts you can check out on their website, such as The Gator Pit, The Four Corners Radio Weekly Show, and an old favourite of mine, The New Blood Rising Podcast, as well as yours truly now. Very excited to be joining the crew and to be amongst such esteemed company, so please do check those guys out at 4CRonline.com or on Twitter at 4C Radio about surfing online do feel free to hop onto itunes and give us a five-star review still looking for the last two lucky reviewers to get their own show picked out with some comments recorded for the next two people to do that feel free to drop me a line on twitter um most of you listening to the show by now know where i am still looking for any feedback and suggestions from anyone out there so do feel free and do make sure to retweet and share our posts and episodes and get the word out there to your friends if you can as well Now, with the formalities out of the way, we're going to have a quick look at the lay of the land in wrestling at this point in time. So, April 1994, ECW, still Eastern Championship Wrestling, not yet extreme. Their World Heavyweight Champion was Shane Douglas. Their TV Champion was JT Smith. And the tag team titles were held by the Public Enemy. Over on the WWF side of the fence, Alondra Blaze was holding the newly re- uh, reused women's title, I guess you could say. Uh, Razor Ramon was the Intercontinental Champion after his epic battle with Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania. The Quebecers were the Tag Team Champions, and Bret Hart was in his second reign as the World Heavyweight Champion. As I said, we were two weeks removed from WrestleMania, and this was back in the day where we still only had the five pay-per-views in the WWF a year, and before ECW were putting on pay-per-views themselves. So, without any further ado, Jack Tunney's flipped his coin, and we're going to check out ECW first. Let's do it. Last week's events, which include Sherry nailing Paul Diamond with a pretty weak-looking chair shot, Shane Douglas picking up a mic as Pat Tanaka runs in to check on his tag partner Paul Diamond, and then Shane Douglas begins to taunt Hawk on the microphone. Pat Tanaka gets up and attacks Shane, which brings Sherry back to nail him with a weak chair shot, and Shane Douglas goes back onto the mic to call out Hawk, who does eventually come out and no-sells a chair shot of his own. We then go to the introduction video for the show, which is pretty poor production value and pretty low rent. Um, I know we're just uh, sort of stepping out of the indie ranks here, ECW, but it, you know it's not anywhere near as slick as the stuff we're used to seeing. 
And then Joey Styles welcomes us to NWA Eastern Championship Wrestling. So there's a turn up for the books. Um, wasn't sure going in whether or not the switch had happened at this point or not. I don't know how it all goes down, but dates from things I haven't seen never really stick in my head. So it was interesting to see this. And they immediately begin selling us an event uh, in the ECW arena for this Saturday, uh, with the big match going to be Shane Douglas defending his top title against Hawk of the Road Warriors. We then go backstage for a promo. Uh, the interviewer, Jay Sully, is interviewing Shane Douglas, Sherry Martell, and the sexiest man alive, Jason. And they're talking about how they've made a deal for the services of Mr. Hughes, who was Jason's manager. He ends with a bit of a double entendre aimed at Sherry, where he says, our services don't come cheap but they do come, and this makes Sherry blush. We then cut across to a Road Warrior Hawk promo. He's moving very quick, but it's not up to his usual high standards. Um, if you're a long-time LOD fan, he's had some doozies among the years. Before we finally go to the ring for our first match, which will see the tag team champions of Public Enemy up against Mike Norman and Mikey Whipwreck. Before the match gets underway, though, we cut up to Joey Styles in the Crow's Nest, joined by a man with a name so 90s it could have been Ross and Rachel's failed relationship. It's Maddie in the house. They're telling us that this Saturday we will see a lumberjack match, or as they call it, a human cage match, which will be the public enemy defending their titles up against the Blue Brothers, um, or Bruce Brothers as they were known in ECW, I do apologise. The match is actually going on because we can see their tiny monitor and we can see the, the wrestlers in the ring going at it on the, on the small monitor, but we're not actually in the ring as of yet. We're still up in the crow's nest listening to the commentators, which was a weird, strange way to start a match. When we do finally get to ringside, uh, I notice that it appears to be shot on a handheld camera. It is still pretty low rent production here. And Rocco names, nails a German suplex for a two count pretty much straight away. The public enemy then take over with a double front suplex, lifting him up and dropping him on his face. Before Grunge hits a reverse DDT and Rocco hits a, hits a flipping senton. They call this double team tandem the drive-by and it gets a three count in a pretty lame squash match which didn't see anything of note really happen. Things do pick up pretty quickly though as we go to a hype video for the Bruise Brothers up against the public enemy and the first thing I notice jumping straight off the screen at me are the Bruise Brothers SS Nazi tattoos. Um, straight away, pretty early in the show here, we're going to award them our dick move of the week and since it's my first show since joining the 4CR guys, I'm not going to tell you what I really think about them. I won't go into too much excessive detail but I was fucking disgusted by this um, I've heard about this and the thing that I've never understood the Bruce Brothers the Blue Brothers the Harris Twins DOA whatever you want to call them they've never drawn a dime have they can anyone point me to somewhere where having them on the show brought in extra fans because if not who the fuck hires them and to think Todd Gordon and Paul Heyman are both Jewish, the guys running ECW, and they've got these guys running around in SS tattoos. Just a pair of fucking assholes, if you ask me. Anywho, during the hype video, we're told that the tag titles will be defended. Um, we'll get the return of Sabu. We'll also get the Sandman in action. And we'll, we've got Jay Sully then interviewing JT Smith, the TV champion, who appears to have a knee injury. He's on a crutch. In comes the Pitbull in a little bit of a weird promo where he's challenging JT Smith, but... He starts a promo looking at him and then talks to him while facing the camera. So he's side on to JT Smith, threatening him and insulting him. It was just a really strange way of doing things. It just someone needed to tell him to look at the guy he's insulting. In the end, after he's threatened him for a while with JT Smith standing there looking like an idiot, he nails him with a cheap shot before walking out, leaving JT Smith and his crutch in a crumpled heap on the floor. 
Anyway, from that promo, we do go back to the ring and we're going to get an actual match that we can watch this time around with Superfly Jimmy Snooker up against Surfer Ray Odyssey. You may be asking right now, who is Surfer Ray Odyssey? And if you tuned into this episode and had a look, you'd get your answer. A fucking idiot. You might be saying right now, well, Lee, why are you being so harsh on poor Surfer Ray Odyssey? Well, I'll tell you why. He comes to the ring wearing a flannelette jacket. Doesn't look like a surfer to me. And when he takes it off to wrestle, you guessed it, he's in a fucking wetsuit. What is this indie bullshit? When Snooker does come out, it's obvious to everyone now that he's aging quite badly. He looks to be about 100 here. And he has someone with him as a manager that looks a bit like a ripoff of Slick, if I'm being honest. That was my first thought. Joey Styles says the line, To my knowledge, it's the first time Ray Odyssey has faced Jimmy Snooker, and vice versa. Hmm, okay, Joey, uh, I'm not sure how one could face the other without vice versa, but no problem. When the match gets underway, Snooker starts to hit some he's hit some knees and some stomps. Um, he's also got the, the big belly with the muscles on display here that OSW seem to love. Um, goes for the eye rake and then hits a, Ray Odyssey hits him with a clothesline, which he no-sells. Uh, Odyssey throws his head into the turnbuckles, which if you've ever fought Jimmy Snooker, you know he's going to no-sell that one as well before he turns around and hits Ray Odyssey with a headbutt. He slams the surfer before going to the second run for a fish drop, but Odyssey gets his foot up and connects with Snooker's face. Ray Odyssey then takes this as his cue to go to the top rope, and he gets up there and starts waving his arms looking for support, the crowd very politely telling that he sucks. He does hit a missile drop kick from up top, uh, and Joey Styles has the nerve to say to us, look at the crowd reacting. Yeah, they're reacting, but not the way that he would hope. The aforementioned slick wannabe grabs Ray Odyssey's foot from the outside, and that's when I catch that his name is actually Hunter Q. Um, so he goes over the ropes with a tope to take him out uh, before getting back in the ring, and Jimmy Snooker hits a rough back suplex and a slingshot suplex before going up top for the moment. We really all came to see the Superfly splash for the one, two, and three. The, um, the characters involved here and the match itself really, it lends itself to my worst match of the night. So we're going to rate it on the Hammerlock system. It only gets a 2 out of 10. It was bad, but it wasn't terrible. It wasn't offensive. It wasn't long. It's just Jimmy Snook is really old and Ray Odyssey looks like a fucking idiot. That being said, it was short and we got the Superfly Splash. So all's well, all's well that ends well. We then cut backstage for a promo with Iron Man Tony Cairo, who I noticed straight away is missing a middle top tooth. And he's telling us about how he and the Sandman used to be friends until the Sandman smashed him in the head and gave him 27 stitches. That's how me and most of my friends broke up as well. We then get more videos hyping the matches for the Saturday night, including one which will be Tommy Dreamer up against Rockin' Rebel. From there, we go back to the ring and my ears peak immediately because it's going to be the Sandman up against Tommy Dreamer. Um, I'm watching on the WWE Network, so unfortunately they denied me one of the my personal top five favorite entrances of all time. You may have heard of it. It's a little doozy like this.
missing out on that was a bit of a kick to the bollocks, and it wasn't the only strange part of the Sandman's entrance either. He didn't quite look like the Sandman yet. He had the blonde mullet and um, a little bit of a gut, looking like a, a slightly tubbier version of Brian Nobbs. He was also wearing a sweater. Uh, interesting look there. He goes on the offense early, attacking Tommy Dreamer um, with some hard whips to the corners uh, before taking his shirt off, and sweet Jesus, that was a bad move. Dreamer comes back with a kick, sort of like an enzigori, um, shoulder block, and then a Dreamweaver looked a lot like a Cobra clutch to me. Sandman knocks over the ref with a flailing arm, and in comes Sal Bellamo, who's apparently going to be one of the special referees for the Saturday night event, and counts a three on an unconscious Sandman for a real dud of a match. Um, got my hopes up for nothing here. There was nothing to this whatsoever. Sandman then attacks Sal, and we go backstage for a Paul E promo. He's unloading on some guy called Crash, and then hyping up the return of Sabu. Good promo, um, even if a little bit out of context for someone who hasn't been watching regularly. It's then time to go for our main event of the evening, which is Austin and Blaze. They don't give us first names or second names, depending on which way those are. Up against Mr. Hughes and, Mr. Hughes and Shane Douglas. Shane Douglas and Mr. Hughes begin battering them early, and the first word on my page is squash, but before I can get another word down, the bell's ringing and they've been disqualified, so that was a little bit of a turn-up. Um, they beat down the two guys in the ring before a cavalcade of jobbers, jobbers come down looking to get in on the action of being squashed, and Hughes and um, Douglas just beat them up one by one, um, sidewalk slams, avalanches, splashes, um, Shane Douglas goes up top for a really crappy top rope splash, not a patch on the Superfly one we saw earlier, then Shane Douglas cuts a promo and they walk out, there was nothing to this episode at all, um, the word on my page that sums it all up is shit, and then looking over my notes, I realised for a show this is the least notes I've ever taken, there was just nothing eventful or memorable at all, um, it is what it is. Let's head over to Raw and see if they've got anything more to offer. opens with Bushwhackers um, trying to petition the fans for votes for the tag team title contest running, followed by Men on a Mission doing the same thing, followed by the Smoking Guns again doing the same thing. Uh, the story of this show is the fans can phone in and vote on who gets a title shot at the Quebecers on this show. When we do get to the arena, it's coming to the to us from the Unica Memorial Auditorium from Unica, New York, and Vince McMahon and the Macho Man Randy Savage are our commentators. They talk about the tag title vote and the potential opponents for the Quebecers later in the evening. In our first match of the night, we'll see Big Daddy Cool Diesel take on Virgil, and yes, Mark, as always, fuck Virgil. No more of that garbage, I promise. 
first hilarious line of the night doesn't come from the Macho Man, but it comes from Vince McMahon, who says, yes, indeed, Virgil will give Diesel a run for his money. No, no, he won't. Diesel's all over him right away with some patented Diesel offense, including the big corner choke with the boot and some corner knees before Virgil does try and mount some offense. He comes off the top rope with an axe handle that connects before going for one move too many and Diesel's had enough, hits him with a huge sidewalk slam, goes back to the corner for some nice corner elbows and then a short clothesline coming out of there before putting on a little bit of a slow bear hug. Um, Virgil escapes, but he gets put back in. Um, it just drags for a, a few seconds here. Vince, with his second hilarious line of the night, says, the one thing Virgil has going for him is his speed and his agility. Hmm, one's not a tough number to count to, Mr. McMahon. Diesel then locks in a third bear hug, and Virgil's just sort of stood there asleep on his feet. Um, I'm not sure how you can sell the bear hug with your eyes closed, not moving. It's not a chokeout move. Um, it's one that's meant to be wrenching you in pain, so a little bit weird. Virgil does get out of this bear hug again and nails two clotheslines on Big Daddy Cool before running off the ropes to stomp on his foot and another clothesline for a two count. This is pretty much the end of Virgil's offense though as it should be. Diesel unloads with a huge big boot and a jackknife before sticking the foot on Virgil's chest for the dominant three count. And this is my kind of squash match, if I'm being honest. It's against a, a name opponent. Virgil's not a nobody, though he should be. Um, but it's a good person for Diesel to beat up on, especially on the way up. And it's a dominant victory as well, so it makes him look like a monster. Go to one of the classic WWF Raw um, unbelievable promos, the couple in bed. I couldn't find a clip of it online, so I couldn't splice it in here. But if anyone has one of those clips or a link for me, send it along and I'll put it on the next Raw show for you all to hear. And we get some ads for the vote, um, encouraging you to call up and pay your silly money to vote for the tag team title match. Next up, we've got Jerry the King Lawler's music hits, and he's being carried out um, on one of those platforms with a throne on it that you've seen with Jerry Lawler and the Macho King previously. And I have to pause to tape the photo that I posted on Twitter earlier in the week. Holy shit, it is Dwayne Gill on the front left, and D'Lo Brown on the front right, a very young, chubby-looking D'Lo, carrying Jerry Lawler to the ring with Gilberg himself. Anyway, they walk him around the ring, and he's um, in front of the commentator's table facing the ring, and they drop him, so he falls off the platform, and Macho Man and Vince can't get enough of that. They think it's hilarious. A distraught Lawler gets in the ring, waffles on a little bit. Um, it's a debut of his segment, King's Court, his interview segment, a la Piper's Pit, The Barbershop, um, Flower Pot. What's it called, The Flower Pot? Oh, I can't, um, the Adrian Adonis one, anyway, uh, going back. Uh, flower Shop, that's what it was. Why would it be a flower pot? They can't talk inside of a pot. Anyway, I'm rambling. You, I digress. Anywho, Lex comes out for the segment to a really good pop, and Lawler's being taunted by Lex with some sarcasm, saying how graceful he was with his entrance. Um, Lex is walking around the ring, cutting this promo to the crowd. It's, at this point, I notice he's got a sneaky bum cheek hanging out, um, not quite adjusted his pants properly here. And Lawler tells Lex that he hears that you're holding a grudge up against, uh, against Mr. Perfect. Lawler says that Mr. Perfect doesn't hold a grudge and Lex Luger deserve what happened to him at WrestleMania 10. And then he says a line which normally I would put in the funny section, but considering the events of this week with the unfortunate passing of Mr. Fuji made me a little bit sad, where he says that Mr. Fuji's not got an enemy in the world because he's outlived them all. That was unfortunate for me to have come across that one this week. We then go back to Lex, who calls uh, Mr. Perfect a coward for not confronting him face-to-face -face if he had a problem. And he says, get out of that suit and put on some tights and come and put, 
put some action where your mouth is, which was another interesting line. Um, I don't think he meant that to sound the way it did before we go to another commercial for the voting line for the tag team title match. When we come back from the commercial break, we've got Thurman Sparky Plug up against Barry Horowitz. For those of you not in the know, Thurman Sparky Plug is the man that would later become known as Hardcore Holly or Bob Holly um, in his original horrible WWF gimmick name. Um, he kept the race car driver gimmick for a long time, but at least I had the sense to drop this name pretty quickly. He gets the action underway with a body slam and an arm drag while the commentators speculate on the whereabouts of The Undertaker, who has been missing since the, um, let's say, the spirit rose from the coffin at the 94 Royal Rumble. Back in the ring, Holly hits a nice hip toss and a drop kick before the commentators change paths and they get Mr. Perfect on the phone uh, while the crowd gets a small Barry chant uh, going, which is pretty funny. Uh, while the commentators are interviewing Mr. Perfect, Barry hits a reverse DDT in a backdrop, and Mr. Perfect tells us basically he's protesting his innocence, and he's threatening Vince McMahon and Macho Man if they say otherwise. This goes back and forth for a while, and in the ring, Bob Holly gets uh, back in control and comes off the top rope with a big knee drop uh, before giving the fakest smile ever to the crowd um, after his win. Really cheesy babyface smile, and if you know anything about Bob Holly, you know that is not him at all. We then get a classic Ica Pro ad, which really dates the show a little bit more, but it's all I, I love this nostalgia. If you've been listening to the show so far, you know the late 80s, early 90s cheese is some of my favourite stuff. And then we go backstage to see the votes being tabulated. Uh, if you're expecting some computer program doing all this, uh, guess again, it's two guys on rotary phones with a pencil and a piece of paper. They don't have much written down, so I'm guessing not many people have phoned up yet. And when we come back from the latest commercial break, the Quebecers are coming out to defend their tag titles, and we find out the winners of the vote were met on a mission. So this is another repeat match for the podcast. We saw this one at WrestleMania 10 last episode, and it was actually pretty decent, even if the finish wasn't too great. Uh, Quebecers are coming down to the ring with their manager, Johnny Polo, in a lovely 90s starter coat. As we do find out that men, men on a Mission did win the vote, my only thought really is at least it wasn't the Bushwhackers. I fucking can't stand them. During the entrance is an interesting tidbit that I never actually knew. The commentators tell us that the Quebecers and Men on a Mission traded tag title victories on their recent tour of Europe. Um, apparently Men on a Mission won the belts um, while in England, in London in fact, but the Quebecers won them back further north in Sheffield. When the match does get underway, men on the mission get on the offense nice and early um, before Jacques gets knocked to the outside. And a real surreal moment for someone who's been watching wrestling for as long as I have, which is roughly 1988 to the present day with a gap between, say, 2009 to 2013, very roughly there. Um, we see Jacques on the outside, and it's basically him and Johnny Polo, a.k.a. the Mountie and Raven, having a big cuddle. So that was a little bit strange, especially considering we've just reviewed an ECW show earlier in this episode. While those two are helping each other with some sensitive feelings, we go to a commercial break, and when we come back in, the Quebecers are back in control of the match. Um, taking turns beating up on Mo. Doesn't last for long though before Mo comes back crutching Pierre on the ropes before hitting a drop toe hold after tagging in Mabel who comes in with a huge leg drop. Mabel then misses an avalanche and Jacques runs in. He takes a bit of a turn on Mabel before getting Pierre back in there who nails Mabel with three big clotheslines. Mabel doesn't go down though. When he comes off for the fourth, Mabel catches him with a decent side slam. This allows Mabel to get the separation and tag out, bringing Mo back in, but he's caught by the Quebecers pretty early. 
While the action's going on in the ring, Vince has a strange line talking about the possible return of the Brother Love show, so stay tuned, I'll let you know if that happens. And the Quebecers begin double-teaming and cheating at every opportunity on Mo as we go to a commercial break. When we come back, they hit a really high elevated double stun gun on Mo for a two-count, which was pretty cool, and the crowd warms up pretty nicely with a Let's Go Mo champ. Mo duly obliges and hits a backdrop on Pierre from inside the ring to out, but Jacques grabs Pierre on the floor and throws him straight back in in time to block the hot tag. Though the next sequence does see the two men hit each other with a double clothesline and puts them both down on the mat momentarily. Jacques attempts to distract the referee, but this allows Mo to hit a low blow in the fracas and then eventually does get the hot tag to Mabel. Mabel comes in and goes to work on both of them with elbows and clotheslines before missing a splash and looking to make the tag out because he's tired after about 30 seconds of offense. The Quebecers go to work quickly on Mabel and one of them is attempting a pinfall and in another moment of wrestling logic here on the podcast, Uh, The referee's distracted, so Mo gets in the ring and flips him over, um, and then they get a two-count out of this, so the Quebecer hadn't actually been hit with an offensive move, but lay there while the referee had his back turned and came over and slapped the mat twice before deciding to try and move. This allows Mabel to get up, though, and he does hit an avalanche, and then tags in Mo, who puts on a small package, and in the repeated moment of wrestling logic, while the referee's distracted, the other Quebecer gets in and flips them over, and the referee turns, comes back over, and counts two on Mo, who hadn't attempted to get out of the pinfall before this. Anyway, the next sequence sees Mo hit over the top rope with a clothesline and Johnny Polo goes to work putting the boots on him on the outside. So this brings Mabel really slowly walking around. He does eventually get a hold of Johnny Polo, but they get Mo back in the ring. Mabel takes an age to do anything to him, just allowing the Quebecers to set up the spot, picks him up for a slam, but holds him up there for ages before actually doing it. And while this is going on, the Quebecers nail their cannonball finisher on Mo and get the one, two, three. The crowd were pretty good for this one, but I have to say, in my opinion, it wasn't quite as good as their WrestleMania match. Um, It wasn't bad, though. Certainly um, a decent tag match, and I think probably the best out of the three they could have chosen. The guns were okay, but I never got into the cowboy gimmick. Uh, Men on a Mission was pretty lame, but I think it's one step above the smoking guns in my mind. I have to say, though, this is coming towards the end of the show, and this has been a decent match, but other than that, we've had two squashes, one that got talked over with a phone call, so it's easy to say why, easy to see why the early 90s Raw does get a little bit of a bad rap, there's not much happening here. We are told, though, that next week we'll see the new WWF champion defend against Quang, that um, announcement is made by Lord Alfred Hayes, which always gets a pop out of me as well. And then we go to a video of a very young-looking Bill and Hillary Clinton and an Easter egg roll at the White House, which also had the bushwhackers and doink there. Um, I'd rather die than attend that, so glad I wasn't there. I'm starting to lay the boots into Monday Night Raw in the same way I did ECW TV earlier on. Uh, something happens that puts me in a better mood. We cut to IRS in the ring. He tells the crowd that they've all got to pay their fair share before calling them tax cheats, as he should do, and then tells Tatanka that he should be paying taxes on that headdress he's been wearing. Um, Good on you, Erwin. Doing the community a service here, I think. We then finish off Raw with a replay of Jerry Lawler falling off his throne earlier in the evening for a pretty unremarkable episode with an unremarkable finish. So, with all that being said, let's go to the wrap-up and see who won probably get the easy one out the way early with this week's show production value hands down goes to raw even though it wasn't the slick well-oiled machine it would be later on it's far better than the 
very, very low-rent budget ECW TV, so that one's not even in contestant, yeah, not even really in contention, if I'm being honest. Crowd Heat was another tough one as well, because you've got to assume the audio quality probably wasn't up to much on ECW, but the only real memorable crowd moment I can remember of the match, other than Ray Odyssey being totally sucked by the ECW audience, was the big Let's Go Mo chant. So Lex also came out to a decent uh, response to it, I think. Um, WWF are going to win crowd heat on this night. Storylines, I will go to ECW simply because they got so many of them across. WWF really had one storyline on the go. Oh, two, I guess, if you count Lex calling out Mr. Perfect, but I don't think it led anywhere. Um, it was really just the one-night story of who was going to get the title shot against the Quebecers. Everything else took a backseat and went into a bit of a holding pattern here after WrestleMania. Whereas over on ECW, we did get storyline advancement for the Pitbull and JT Smith. Shane Douglas aligning with Mr. Hughes up against um, Road Warrior Hawk. And some storyline advancement with the tag team title match as well. So there was a beat going on in ECW. They're going to win this category. Characters, I'm going to go with the WWF, um, although it was a bit closer than you would think. They had Diesel on the show, who was becoming a star, with Shawn Michaels. Jerry Lawler and Lex Luger, both good characters. Um, though from there, it was a bit of a write-off, except for maybe the Quebecers. Um, but in ECW, Surfer Ray Odyssey, the Jobbers in the tag match, um, Jimmy Snooker well past his prime. None of these people meant anything, and it didn't really bode well on the character side of things. They had Shane Douglas, and they did talk about Sabu, though he didn't appear. And while they had the Sandman and Tommy Dreamer, they were completely wasted and looked like, again, indie nobodies on this show. Which takes us to our last category, which is match quality. And the tag match on Raw was actually the best match of the night for anything here. Diesel and Virgil would probably be number two if I had to pick as well. So Raw's going to win that one hands down, making this a pretty comfortable victory for the WWF over ECW. Um, I'm of the opinion, which is not really shared by many, so do give me your thoughts on this, that... I don't think ECW in the early days was all that great. Now, if you tell me the arena shows were amazing and you saw them, fair play, I can't really argue with that. But I've got, kind of got the inverse opinion of ECW where I think it started off pretty rough and it got better as it went along right up until its uh, doors closing. That's based really on just me having DVDs of most of the pay-per-views through my life and enjoying the later ones more than the earlier ones. And there may be some bias there because... In the later years, a lot of those characters ended up in the WWF, and I liked them there. Taz, the Dudley Boys, RVD, etc. But I never really got into the early 90s and mid-90s uh, ECW. Anyway, that'll do it for this week's show. Just a quick one to keep everyone going here. We've got some more things in the pipeline, including some look-aheads to sort of the later Nitro and Raw comparisons. We've got a pay-per-view show coming up in 1995 after the next Raw and Nitro, uh, so look out for that one as well. If anyone has any thoughts or feedback they would like to have aired on the show as well, please do get in touch. Um, looking for some audio clips for the bigger shows if anyone wants to contribute, or even if you've just got some thoughts you'd like me to read out on the show, get in touch on Twitter and we can work something out and of course as I mentioned earlier please do go check us out on 4CR and have a look at all the other guys in the wrestling lineup over there as well um, really cool to be involved with some of those guys so please do check them all out as well as us and for now thank you very much and catch you all next time Mr. Porter. Started with a starter coat. 
Still got us out the mama jokes The house party finally started, now it's time to go Get some pussy sponsored by the barber and the bar So I'm still in cars with a lot of coke But on the body side of taught us how to drive them, no We used to tilt them bitches with screwdrivers So I'm kinda used to being at the bottom of your columns, so But the billboard list was kinda comical How the fuck was it designed to chronicle? I can see it now for sure Bunch of glasses from a bunch of artists But the tallest flow Getting trampled over on the 20-year-old blogger flow If Pac ain't on your list then you ain't fucking logical I'm talking up the shit, not no fucking 504 What you gon' tell me when I tell you Pac? Introduce me to the fucking you and LB start uh, it all started with a starter coat Wondering why Brenda threw that baby in the garbage folk On my way to cop my navy blue starter coat uh, It all started with a starter coat The starter pistol kept niggas out who started smoke Without it I'd be there to be an artichoke Denying iron armor in the heart it go Nobody with you nigga, that's the artist go But do not forget your fucking starter coat That's my mom, whoa, Starter coat Now a nigga shining though Growing up I gave a lot of niggas shiners though I gave a lot of people my respect Daddy taught me that when growing up he threw me through a shower though I used to wonder why my uncle looking startled for Crawling around on the ground like his heart is broke I found out he got a crack problem and he thought he dropped a couple particles Well I'm a fucking alcoholic so who am I to cut? I'm just honorable I'll be temporarily in love when I'm inside a hole I'm a pure artist, I don't need to see the charts to know the art is under our control Highs, lows, problem, pain, drama, that's what I promote Guess I'm just a vessel, thanking God I'm feeling awesome though Cause I survived the era of the starter coat uh, It all started with the starter coat I lost my virginity aboard the fucking bubble boat Whoa, I ain't graduate on time, I ain't go to college So couple friends of mine did, other friends of mine did I'm fucking reminded, just because I made the most money That don't mean I went to father's though Whoa, whoa, I hope my college friends reminded You got degrees, that don't mean you the smartest though More money, more problems, I lost plenty more marbles On my marble flow than I left in my starter coat What they taught us, that was solid joke You may not got a lot of dollars, at least you got a post I'm arguing with Satan, screaming out on bar souls Please don't take my memories of me and my Starter jackets, you need to pick them up. 